Most of you know me. I've been here before. If you don't know me, uh, my name's Nate Prater. Uh, I'm another North American Mission Board, Send Network, church planter in the Woodstock area. Um, and so it's just a joy for me to be here. Uh, we are in a similar situation, just a little bit behind you guys, praying about how and when to launch and what that might look like. So it's always a joy for me to be here uh, to visit with you guys. My family didn't make it this morning. We've got one real slow riser. Um, who suffers from some health stuff at times, and so uh, they were a little bit behind me this morning, and long story short, we only have one car that's safe to drive in this condition, so uh, I'm glad to be here this morning. I was impressed with the guys reading scripture. Um, I hammered them with Leviticus, and so maybe you're wondering why Leviticus. Um, yeah, we've got a little echo, huh? It's all right. Uh, let me do this. I'm going to pray then for the sermon while you adjust me during the prayer, if that works. So let's bow in a word of prayer together. We'll ask God for his help. Father, thank you this day for the grace that you have given us, allowing us to gather together here. Uh, Lord, we gather together as uh, those who have come to worship you in the spirit of God because of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we ask that you would Leave us today not the same, but transformed more and more into the image of Christ. That is our heart's desire. God, we know that that is our greatest good to be like Jesus. We pray, God, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, speak to us through the Word of God this morning. And that in so doing, you would exalt the Lord Jesus and glorify your name. So we ask that you would do this now for the sake of the kingdom, here in Genoa, Lord, in Illinois, in our country, and globally. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I had the guys read from, <clears throat> excuse me, Leviticus. I don't know if you noticed those passages. They were about the Sabbath and then about the year of Jubilee. And, and those can be uh, concepts that are kind of lost on us. It's not a part of the Christian everyday rhythm like it was for the Israelites. But to understand what's going on there uh, is going to be critical to understanding what's going on in Isaiah 58. But the Sabbath, remember the Sabbath begins not initially with Israel, but the Sabbath finds its foundations in the very creative work of God. God creates in six days, you remember, and then on the seventh day, God rests. And what God is doing then on that seventh day and, and what humanity is supposed to do is then enter into that completed rest of God. God has created all the world and then God has created mankind and he has placed them in this environment. We call Eden, the Garden of Eden. The word Eden simply means delight. God created his people. He rested in, in the sense that his work was completed and finished. And he places man in this delightful garden. And then what man was supposed to do was to live in this relationship with God. Now think about it. God completes. He places them in Eden. And it says that there were, was in Eden all kinds of trees with fruit for eating. Man was there to rest. God had made the ground and the earth and the plants and all of that to produce for man, to sustain man. And, and so man was supposed to then just take this, cultivate and keep the garden. But the idea is this, is that they would take that Eden-like environment and they would begin to expand it all throughout God's creation until, like the, uh, the prophet Isaiah prophesies, will happen in the future, until the glory of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. And so then, what happens though? Mankind sins. We decided, instead of just receiving from God, instead of saying, God, you have created and this is good and I, I'm just here to receive from you, to be blessed. The, the work in the garden was the work of rest. Have you ever experienced that where you're, 
Uh, some people are gardeners. I know my wife and kids, they love to garden. And they don't do it because the gardens that we have feed us throughout the year. As a matter of fact, we're lucky to ever get anything to actually come to fruit. Especially in these cold places. Now, we used to live in California up in the mountains. And our growing season was like a month and a half. And so really, we planted a garden because the girls liked to be out there getting their hands in the dirt. And it was fun to watch stuff grow. Now, they were cultivating, they were keeping, and it was restful to them. And that was the idea of the garden and the rest. But mankind sinned. We said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to do it our way. God, this is what you've said, but man, that tree looks good. And I think I would like to know more, more than God. And so they take from the tree. Sin happens. Now, after sin, this is what goes on. God then says in his law, okay, you're going to take a Sabbath day. A Sabbath day. Now, all the other nations around Israel had to work seven days a week just to survive. And God says, but that's not the way it's going to be with my people. My people are going to work six days. And in that six days worth of labor, I will bless them so much that they will be able to rest on the seventh day. And that seventh day rest was for Israel. It was supposed to be this, this weekly reminder of the hope that they had based on the promises of God that He would set things right once again. That though in the garden mankind had fallen and sin had entered into God's world and corruption and death with it, God was weekly reminding His people, I'm going to make this right. And all the way back in Genesis 3.15, you remember this, when there was the curse going over the earth, God said, cursed is the ground and this and that. He also said that there would be a seed from the woman that would come and would destroy the serpent. And that promise continues all throughout. And then, not only did God then institute this Sabbath day as a weekly reminder, there was a Sabbath year. And if you notice that, there's a Sabbath year. And on the seventh year, they were not to sow or to uh, prune or manicure their stuff, but that <clears throat> through those six years of labor in the ground, there would be enough. And I think the word is, I'm not a farmer, but volunteers, right? They just come up, you don't plant them, there's the volunteer stuff that comes up. God would do that on the seventh year. And that they would go then and they would be able to, without working the field that year, God would provide for them. And not only that, it says that they were to be very generous and liberal with the poor and the needy, especially in the seventh year. That it would provide for God's people and that all who would come to them would be provided for by God. Now, if that wasn't enough, there was after seven cycles of those seven years, so 49 years, the 50th year, and we read about this, was a year of Jubilee. Now, the year of Jubilee was important because what happened in the year of Jubilee was... Let's say you, were a, uh, you owned a piece of land and you fell upon hard times and you needed to sell that land. Y you would sell the land, but on the 50th year, all property went back to its original ownership. In other words, all in these cycles of seven and Sabbath is God's reminder to His people and through His people, a reminder to all mankind that God would set right all that we had done wrong. That there was going to be this restoration that there was going to be this, this realm and one day all mankind would be able to rejoice in the goodness of God, receive from Him the way that He had designed Eden to be. In other words, the Sabbath and the Sabbath patterns were a reminder to God's people and through God's people to the world that God would fix the mess that we had made of His creation. That God would set right all that was done. 
And for all of those who would trust and believe and receive him in that way, that there would mean this time when that seventh day rest would be all that they knew. Now that becomes important when we look into Isaiah chapter 58. And I didn't check to see what page it might be in the Pew Bibles, um, but we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 58 this morning. Let me take a minute and read through the text this morning. It's 14 verses, it's quite a chunk, but it's well worth hearing. Isaiah 58, beginning in verse 1. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression and to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask me for righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke and to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh, then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer you. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as noonday, and the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail." And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt, and you shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and a holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth, and I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Amen. There's a lot there. We're not going to have a chance to dive into all of it. But the big picture pieces of it are so clear, and I thought it was so helpful for those of us involved in a church plant. Because one of the beauties of being a church plant is that we have... Time and, and it's important and fundamental to what we do to ask ourselves the most basic questions. Well, why are we here? What are we doing? 
what's the purpose of this? Is it just to have some more doors open on Sunday so that there's a, a different place that people have an option to come and, and, and receive and hear and then we go back our ways? Or what are we doing? And um, So one of the things that we did was we put up a little message for our, our message at Woodstock uh, about what we're about. I want to read that just briefly to you guys. Uh, our message is this, that we are those who have been set free and sent by Jesus. We've been set free and sent by Jesus. Now, I'm going to leave out the set free part because there's two decent paragraphs here and I can see my clock running. So, But we wrote this as our second paragraph about being sent, although the set free is my favorite part. As followers of Jesus, we believe that we have been sent to serve Jesus by serving our community. That we have been sent to speak the good news about Jesus and to savor who Jesus is and all that he's done for us. We want to serve our community as a testimony to how we have been served by God through Jesus. And I'm going to pause there and say, this message is going to focus on that part. On that part of the paradigm, of the bigger picture, is that we have been sent by Jesus. And we have been sent by Jesus to serve our communities. Not as a way to try to earn God's favor. Not as a way to say, okay, God, I went and served. Now you need to start answering my prayers, and here's my list. Do you notice what it said? We have been sent by Jesus to serve our communities as a testimony to Jesus. We serve our communities in the hope that they will see that, man, these guys love to serve. Why do they love to do that? Because we've been served so richly and deeply by Jesus. We've been set free by Jesus. We've been lifted up by Jesus. And so we want to do the same to our communities around us as a testimony to that. Now with that said and setting the stage for Isaiah 58, let's turn back to the beginning of Isaiah 58. As I've been in this section of Scripture this week, one of the things that really hit me was the idea of true devotion versus false devotion. True devotion versus false devotion. Now, the, the outline here, it says the sin of religious people. Or another way to think of that is false devotion. What does false devotion look like? And, and what's amazing is, look at verse 1. The prophet has been told by God here, and it's cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Now, the trumpet was used to get the attention of everybody in the community, right? The trumpet would be sounded to go to war or to gather all of the assembly. And it got me thinking, do we have anything like that around here? And then I thought, oh, every Tuesday, first Tuesday of the month in Woodstock. Man, that siren goes off, the tornado siren. I'm from California. The first Tuesday I was here, all of a sudden there's this massive siren that's like, okay, something's wrong, something's going on. So I'd met one of the other pastors in the area, and I called him, I'm like, Mitch, what is going on? Like, do I need to be in the basement? Do I need to be getting out of here? He's like, Nate, it's Tuesday. I'm like, great, yeah, Tuesday's scary. <laughs> he says, no, the first Tuesday of every month they test the tornado siren. I'm like, that, there should be a flyer or like a welcome package when you come into the Midwest, right? Because in California, we don't have earthquake sirens. I guess you don't have any warning for the earthquake, so that would be rough, right? So anyway, that's the idea of sound the trumpet. God is saying this, that there is a sin so wicked in my people that we need to sound the tornado siren and get everybody's attention and let them know what they've done wrong. And so I read that first verse, and if you're like me, you're thinking, okay, uh, Baal worship, they've got the Asherah poles out, maybe they're sacrificing their children on the fire, and that's what you would ex expect. 
Look at verse 2. Here's the sin that's so great in the community. They seek me daily. Huh. Okay. And delight to know my ways. Now, I don't know about you, but I thought we were supposed to seek God daily. And to delight to know His ways. Now, the idea of seeking Him daily, in Israel, you would seek God. His presence was in the temple. That's where God said, my presence will dwell in the temple. And so what He's saying is they're coming to the temple daily. They're offering their sacrifices. They're bringing their offerings to Me. They're delighting to know My ways externally. They're going through the motions. But look at the middle of verse 2 and it's going to get to the very heart of what has God so angry. As if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. So here's a group of people who are daily coming to the temple and doing their religious observations. They're punching the time card. They're doing this. And then the rest of their lives, apart from the temple, they're not doing anything that resembles righteousness. They come and they offer their gifts. And, and this is false devotion. This is, in our terms, what we would call legalism. You come to God. You go through the motions. And here's the reason. God, I've done these things that You've asked. Now do what I want. We hear that later, don't we? They're crying out, we've fasted, God, and You haven't seen us. We've humbled ourselves and You're not giving us what we want. And I'm reminded of the Pharisees who would go to the street corner and they'd put on all their gear and they'd get decked out with their fancy whatever prayer garments. And they would stand on the corner and they would pray in the air so that the people could hear them. It was all for show. And these guys are coming to God not to get God. They're coming to God and doing these things so that God can give them what they want. And God says, I can't hear that. That's not what it's all about. Now, were these things that God required? Absolutely. They were sacrifices that God had instituted into His people. But one thing to understand is that the sacrificial system was not, not only about sin. It was about sin. But in our, in, in our church at Embassy, which is our sending church in Palatine, me and Pastor Phil preached through the first seven chapters of Leviticus and split it. And one of the things that I loved about this, there is this repeated scene in the sacrificial system where the, the worshiper would come with the animal. And then you probably recognize this. They would lay their hands on the animal. Okay? And now in, in the Day of Atonement, that was a clear picture of the transmission symbolically of the sins of the people to the animal. But that was the Day of Atonement. In the day-to-day -day ritual, what happened was the placing of the hands on the animal meant now that the animal represented the worshiper. And so when then there was the whole burnt offering and the animal was consumed in fire and ascended up in smoke, the idea was is that now the animal represents the worshiper and the fire was a way of transforming the animal, or now the worshiper, into a form that could ascend into the presence of God. It was a way to come to the temple and be reminded in the system of why we exist. We exist to live our lives in the presence of God. That He is our greatest good and all that we're looking for. Now they're, they're coming. They're offering the animals and they want nothing to do with God's presence. They just want the good things that God will give them. And God says, I don't hear that. I can't hear that. Verse 3, we fasted, you don't see. We've humbled ourselves, you take no knowledge of it. And then notice this. Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your pleasure. 
And what we're going to see is that as this unfolds, they would come and they would fast or they would take their Sabbath rest and do all of these things that God required. But you know what it says? That they would oppress their workers. So they were taking a break, taking the day off like God said, or offering these sacrifices at the temple, but that meant that they were doubling the workload of those around them. Because they were going to take the day off, they were then oppressing somebody else, taking advantage of somebody else. And God says, that's not at all what this is about. When God created and rested in the garden, there was no people of Israel, there was just mankind. God's rest is something that He has always desired for all people to enter into. So it goes against the very principle of the Sabbath and all of these things that God had instituted to say, okay, I'm going to do that at the expense of someone else. You see, when we think that way, we're only thinking about ourselves. I'm going to get right with God and I'm going to get mine and whatever happens to you, it doesn't matter to me. As we go down in verse 6, we see the heart of true devotion. False devotion is religion that comes to God to get from God the things that we want. At the heart of true devotion, what do we see? Verse 6, is this not the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness. To undo the straps of the yoke. To let the oppressed go free. And to break every yoke. Now remember, the contradiction is, okay, I'll take a day off. I'll rest, I'll do what you've asked, but they're going to have to do double then. And he says, that's not the kind of fast that I'm looking for. I'm looking for the kind of fast that actually breaks the bonds of wickedness, undoes the yoke, lets the oppressed go free. Verse 7, is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? That first line in verse 7, I love it. God says, you, you know what kind of fast I'm looking for? You see somebody who's hungry? Feed them. In other words, think about this. It's almost as if God is saying, okay, you're going to fast, and there are many ways to fast, but the primary one, right, is to abstain from eating. God says, how about, how about this? How about instead of taking a day off of eating or a block of time off, a meal from eating? In which case, if you do that, if you're just taking that time off, and there's nothing wrong with fasting, by the way, Okay, uh, in this new year, I've made a commitment on a couple days a week to try to institute fasting into my life in certain ways because Paul says that we should discipline our body and make it our slave so that we're not a slave to our body, but then we can put our body to use for the sake of righteousness. And when greater temptations come, it'll be easier to tell my body no because I'm used to it. So fasting's not bad. But it's as if, it's as if God is saying to them, okay, you want to fast? Here's a good way to do it. You see somebody that's hungry, take them your dinner. That's a good way not to eat. Like you're serving somebody else. Because if all you're doing is you're like, okay, I've got this planned fast on, let's say for them, it's a Wednesday. Boy, but Thursday morning, we're going to have all that food from Wednesday. And it's just going to be a feast on Thursday morning. God says, no, here's a good way to fast. You see somebody who's needy, take from the bounty that I've given you and go feed them. Help them. Help the poor and the needy. And I was thinking about this, and what a great text for a church plant. What a great text for us as we think about why has God called us to Genoa, to Woodstock. And we live in this way because this is the heart of true religion. So false devotion is coming to God to get what you want from God. True devotion... True devotion 
is loving God and therefore loving what God loves. And you know what God loves? God loves to take the hungry and, and those who are starved and without, and He loves to satisfy them. He loves to take those who are in bondage and to break the chains. And we're going to see later on, I'm getting into the, the end of it right now because it's so exciting. Huh? So we'll hold off on that right now. But true devotion is found in loving what God loves. And God has called us in our life not just to be those people who go through the religious motions, but who, like the, the sacrifice represented, when, that, when the whole burnt offering was offered, it symbolized that the entirety of the worshiper was then going up in the presence of God. That the entirety of the worshiper was then given or set apart for God and God's purposes. And what too often happens if we're not careful is that Sunday Nate is different than Monday through Friday Nate. Or Nate at home with my family as I'm praying for the meal is different than the guy who's punching the time card at work every day. And we start to divide who we are as if, as if we were somehow going to do it different on Sunday than we did Monday through Saturday and all of that. And, and what God wants, what God wants is He wants His people to be wholly committed and devoted to Him. And we're going to see that there's ample reason for us to do that. That Jesus has done so much for us that the only logical and necessary outcome of that would be like, yeah, how could I not follow Him and give Him all of my life? But again, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. I want to look now at this. I, I want us to think about because as those who have been called to be a part of a church plant, you guys are here and the goal, right, is to reach Genoa with the gospel. To reach Genoa with the gospel. And, and here we are talking about Hey, you, wanna, you want true religious devotion? You want to know where it starts? Well, look at your neighbors and look at the people in the community. Are there hurting and helpless? Are there those who are hungry and needy? And, and so then the call here in this text is, okay, make that a priority. Make people a priority. Because God has made people a priority. He's loved us. And, and He says, listen, there are so many people, and we've seen them. There's so many people who are hungry and needy and poor. And then we also think, okay, like we're in Woodstock and it's getting closer and closer to like the suburbs of Chicago and there are a ton of people there who don't strike me as poor. But they're absolutely deprived of any spiritual wealth. And they may have all the physical goods around them and they're the poorest person you've ever met. Because we have this idea that temporal physical goods will make us happy. And it's just not true. And so those who are in bondage and poor and the oppressed, they come in all different shapes and sizes. Now I don't want to diminish the Christian call to love the least of these. That we have been called to pour out and have a special eye for those who have less than we do. That God has called us to that. It should be at the very heart of who we are. But I just don't want us to, to, to limit those who are in bondage to merely those who are poor in temporal ways. But also those who are poor in spiritual ways. Now here's the beauty. is We think, okay, and, and I've, I've been a part of this. I, I'm big on the Bible and teaching and preaching. Uh, but over the years, and um, I've come to see this more because there are some. I used to be a part of these churches and, and praise God for them. And they were going to stand firm on the Word of God. They weren't going to compromise they had a commitment to Christ-centered biblical teaching and exposition. 
But a lot of times what happens when you get there with these churches, like, yeah, we're big on the Bible, we love the Bible, is that what happens is, is it comes at the expense of outreach and loving in the community and doing that stuff. And they think this way, and I've heard this before, yeah, you need, to, you need to feed the hungry. Like, it's good to give people a sandwich, but it would be better if you gave them a track. And I just think, we don't need to divide that way, do we? Like, but here's the beauty. In this text, what we're going to see is that in this living this way, like outward-minded, like there's a community of people around us who, who are hurting, and, and they need to know that there is a God who loves them. We, a lot of our outreach in Woodstock, there's these apartment complexes across the street from us, and they're government-subsidized, and so everybody in there is poor. Like, they're just, they're poor, and, and so God has given us an in, and man, time after time, almost no one there has a vehicle. They can't afford it. So people are asking us for rides and it, it interrupts our day or can you take us here or hey, listen, I don't have any money. Like, would it be so hard? Could you like get me and my daughter a meal? And so we're doing that. And oftentimes, oftentimes, it's like we go, we get them, we help them, we do this. And not every time do we get to just share the gospel. Like that 10 minutes to ask them and, and then speak the gospel into their life. Now, a lot of them come to the Bible studies we do and this and that. But Isaiah 58, as we work through this text, it's going to tell us something. That that kind of a testimony in a community will do something. So look with me at verse 8. Verses 6 and 7 are all about caring for the needs of the needy. Then look at verse 8. Then. Then. Now let's just pause for a moment. After you do this, then this will happen, right? You see the flow of that? Then shall your light Break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. Huh. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Here's the idea that if we will pour ourselves out for those that God seems to have a passionate heart for, the needy, the outcast, the poor, the one who has been maybe different from their family and so they've been exiled out of their family and they're looking for somebody to love them, looking for somewhere to call home. And, and God says, listen, if you will testify to my love by loving them the way I've loved you and caring for them by the way, the way that I've cared for you, then your light shall break forth like a dawn. And the idea is this, is that if we want to be effective in reaching people for Jesus in our community, then we need to love like Jesus loved. We need to do these things, and, and you guys have probably noticed this, right? That when you start to do this and a church gets a reputation for actually caring about people, for actually caring about their community, a church gets a reputation for wanting to leave in their community the footprint of the gospel of God's love. Their righteousness goes before them. Their light goes before them. Oh, you go to that church, man. You guys do great things. Thank you. Man, the park looks so much better. You've cleaned it up. Or I know so-and-so, and man, you helped them one day and helped them out with this. And then the opportunity is there. Yeah, let me tell you why. I've been helped like that. I was poor and needy and destitute in my big house or whatever it was, and he reached down to me in my poverty of soul, and he lifted me up. 
And all we're trying to do is to show the world that there is a God who cares about the brokenness of this creation. There is a God who is not indifferent to the fact that that we see more crime tape than we see joyful celebrations. That we see more broken, dilapidated, fire-ridden buildings or whatever it is than we do beautiful gardens. That we see funeral after funeral after funeral of death taking place in this world. And they need to know, this world needs to know, there's a God who cares about that. And He cares deeply about that. As the church, we are called to be those who have God as our King, Jesus as our Savior, have been redeemed. Therefore, we are those, and we're the only ones, friends, in this broken world who can promote the kingdom of God that can live in such a way that says God cares about this. Now think about this. And I don't have time to look into all of it, but as you get down in this text, and God says, I'm just going to read some of it. It's too good. Look at verse 10. If you pour yourself out for the hungry. Now does, does pouring yourself out for the hungry sound like I've got a little extra in the cupboard or I don't have room for this can, so therefore I can give that away. No, no, no. Pour yourself out. Empty the cupboards for the hungry. The only way that we can truly, truly bear others' burdens is if we are willing to become like them. Love is always sacrifice in a broken world. If you're going to love somebody in their brokenness, then you have to wear part of that brokenness. It's always sacrifice in a broken world to love people. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted. Now, jump down into verse 11. And the Lord will guide you continually. If you pour yourself out, now look at this, He will satisfy your desire in the scorched places and make your bones strong. Picture a garden. Okay? You are a garden. You have a garden, whatever it may be. And if you pour yourself out for the needy, in other words, what happens is that garden just got cleared. Became a scorched place. If you're helping somebody, that's what you're doing. You're pouring yourself out. You're emptying yourself. You go from garden to scorched place. And this tells us, if you do that, God will satisfy you in the scorched place. You pour yourself out, and no longer is it just the veggies satisfying you, It's God Almighty who spoke the world into existence and He promises, I will satisfy you. I will be your joy and your delight. I will be to you when you get rid of that, the true bread from heaven. I will give you everything you need. I will be a spring of living water springing up into your soul that will never run dry if you will do this. If you will do this, He says. You shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Now you hear this imagery, right? If, if this will happen, if you will pour yourself out for the needy, God says He will do this. And now you think to yourself, yeah, but I know myself. I try to do this sometimes and over and over again I seem to fail. Like I have good intentions and I want to, but then you know what? Like it's just hard. I'm fallen. And you're right. You know what? None of us can ever do this. None of us can ever do this perfectly. And it's actually the fact that none of us can do it perfectly that should inspire us to do it more. And what I mean by that is because none of us could do it perfectly, God sent His Son. He took on flesh. 
And do you know what Jesus did? He did this absolutely perfectly. Jesus came and and everything that we see here, Jesus has done for us, right? Jesus has come and He has broken the bonds of all wickedness. In 1 John it says that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Satan, from the very beginning, has desired to bind us in sin and pull us away from God through temptation, through accusation, through all of that. And Jesus has come to destroy the works of the devil and break every bond. Jesus has broke every yoke, hasn't He? We're called, God says, is this not the fast that I call? To break the yoke. Those who are bound, that's what a yoke did, right? It bound you together or bound you to hard labor behind you. And Jesus has broken those yoke. And what's beautiful is the way Jesus breaks the yoke is He says, take that one off and put mine on you. That yoke is going to wear you out. You try to come to God over and over again to get what you want. You're just going through the motions. You're going to wear out. It's a burden that Jesus tells the Pharisees that neither you nor your fathers could carry. But Jesus says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to break that yoke by putting mine on you. And my yoke is easy. It'll give you rest in your soul. So Jesus breaks the yokes on us. Jesus not only shared His bread with us, but He became the bread of life for us. You think about what Jesus had to do. Did He have to pour Himself out to be, become that bread? Absolutely. We're going to see that in just a moment portrayed for us. That in order for Jesus to lift us up and to feed our hungry souls, for Jesus to be the bread of life, He had to become broken in His body for us. Jesus has not only brought the poor and destitute and naked into His house, but He has called us His brethren and He has made it possible, possible for us to be adopted into the family. I mean, think about that. There's no clearer sign of bringing somebody into the house than saying you're a part of the family. Could you imagine? We have a now eight-year-old daughter who we adopted from Bulgaria. And, and she is as much a part of our family as our other girls are. I've got two other teenagers, so sometimes I'm thinking, oh, she's more a part of the family. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that was a joke for anybody who has teenagers. Uh, kind of a joke. No, um, Jesus has come, and by His sacrifice, and by His death, and then by His resurrection that gives us new life, He's brought us into the family. He's not just brought us into our home and clothed us temporarily, but He has brought us into the family. We were naked and absolutely devoid of any righteousness before God, and Jesus has come and lived the life that we could never live. He's done all of this that we could never do, and He has clothed us with His righteousness. And and friends, we have a message I look around the world that we live in and it's broken. And people, what really gets me is, I remember when I first got saved, it was just, it was ignorance on fire. And I remember, and what I, what I was really good at was what Jesus says to remove this yoke was wagging the finger. Well, look at them, man. They're not living the way they should be. And I remember, God forgive me for this. My parents are unbelievers. And I got saved and my girls were little, maybe two and four, I can't remember, our older girls. And I remember telling my mom, Well, if you don't like the way we're raising our girls, you just don't have to see them. And that was my way of wagging my finger at her lifestyle instead of showing her grace. And do you know, it took years to repair that breach. Years for my mom to see Christ and Christianity as anything but this finger-wagging 
jerk. As a matter of fact, the sad part is it actually took the passing of my brother to begin to restore that relationship with my mom. And, and, and my parents need Jesus. They need Jesus. And, and my wagging of the finger was this barrier. And I look out in the world and I see broken people. And I was just reading this book. <clears throat> Actually, it was for that Send Network training. And one of the chapters said this, the kingdom of God is beautiful. Amen. Like, like, people need to know we're all sinners and we need to repent of that sin and turn to Jesus. And He died on the cross for us. But there are some people who are unsaved and beauty captures them. And we need to be able to tell them too that the kingdom of God is beautiful. That Jesus is not just your ticket out of hell, but He is your ticket to experiencing everything that this heart desires. Everything that you have ever longed for and have tried to find in the bottle or in the needle or in the joint or whatever it may be. Everywhere you've looked for that. Falsely, in, in, in physical activity, whatever it may be. Jesus is what you're searching for, whether you knew it or not. And that's why you got to keep going back to these things time and time again. And every time you go back to them, the shame piles up higher and higher, the heartache higher and higher, because you have been created for one thing to satisfy your soul. That is God Himself. And He has come in the person of Christ to do that. And we were such a broken mess that Jesus said, I'm going to come and I'm going to take all of that brokenness on me. I'm going to wear all of that brokenness to the point where the brokenness of the world was so heavy on Him that He became broke. But here's the glory of Jesus. He's not like you or me. If we're broken, we're done unless God steps in from outside. Jesus took all of that brokenness on Him, but here's the thing. Because He was fully God and fully man, because He was perfect, sin had no claim on Him. It had no claim on Him because the wages of sin is death. But Jesus had never sinned. Now, He wears our brokenness and He wears our sin and He absorbs God's wrath in it, but it has no claim on Him. And so on the third day, the grave could hold Him no longer. It could not keep Him down. Jesus was broken to become our bread of life, but then He raises from the dead as the firstfruits of God's new creation. Jesus is the very beginning of that new Eden. There's coming a day, and the resurrection of Jesus is God's like, here it is, you want to know that's coming? Here it is, I've raised Jesus from the dead. And now each one of us who are followers of Jesus partake spiritually in our soul of a little bit of that new creation, don't we? Don't we? That's what it means to be born again. Paul says you're a new creature. In other words, you are participating in the new creation. And so then we're called to live in such a way that shows this world around us, God cares. And He is restoring and He will ultimately restore one day all of this. And we need people to know there's hope. You can find hope. God is aware of the brokenness around you and how hard it is, but He sent Jesus. And we get to tell Him about the good news of Jesus. That Jesus not only died for your sin and my sin personally, so that we could be reconciled to the Father and that's absolutely necessary, but when Jesus dies on the cross, it's to reconcile all things to God. That God cares about the world that we live in and one day we'll set it right. See, we have a message. And we want to live in such a way that shows people that we're not merely about false religious devotion. Because that's what the world thinks about Christians. A lot of them. I don't know how many times I've heard it like, 
Oh yeah, you think you're better than us because you go to church. Or why do you need to go to church? You're just doing this, you're doing that. And then it becomes incumbent on us to show them what it means to have the life of Christ living in us and to pour ourselves out for a community. And I don't know Genoa that well, but it's a part of the world, so I know that there are massive pockets of brokenness and darkness in this city like every other one. And you know what God's doing about it? Well, look around. This is what God's doing about it. We're the messengers. We're ambassadors. We live in such a way as to testify to Jesus. And so, praise God. And then when you start to get overwhelmed and you feel like, I can't do this, just remember, Jesus already has. He's already come. Jesus has already come as the one who accomplished the true fasting of God on our behalf. And so our labor, friends, remember this is the most important. Our labor is the labor of testifying, not of accomplishing to earn it ourselves. We will never be the ones who see the the world transformed. That's on Jesus. We just testify to the fact that it's going to happen, and we testify to Jesus who's made it possible. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Lord, thank you for um, the Word of God. Thank you for Christ, Lord, who has in our brokenness done, Lord, what only He can do, what we could never do. He's taken the brokenness of this world upon Himself completely. He has drank the full cup of Your wrath and of our brokenness. It's by the anguish of His soul that You are satisfied. And God, we give You praise. I pray that You would help us to live in our communities as testimonies to the true light. Help us to be lights in this world because we know the light of the world. We pray in His name. Amen.